Hey, this is Angel Donovan with Dating Skills Podcast. This is the show where we look at dating, sex, and relationships with the help of different experts every episode. And we look at it from any perspective that could be useful. We have no biases. We have no allegiances, not to academic scientists or to people who have experience like porn stars, pickup artists, or strippers, and so on. We do not care where the information comes from. All that we care is that it gets us closer to the truth. So keep an open mind because every show we're bringing a different perspective and there's something to be learned from that. This week we're looking at love and commitment and we're going to do it from as practical a perspective as possible. We're looking at it from a science perspective and some practical applications of that science. And we're answering questions such as what is love and commitment? Do you really want it? Is it something that's going to fit for you? How do you actually go about strategically and sensibly looking for love and commitment? How do you approach it? And how do you keep it once you've found it? Now, those are big questions. And I think there are a lot of questions there that don't typically get answered. Even if you look in relationship books and a type of books which cover these type of subjects, they don't normally look at it from a really, really practical action-taking perspective. So today we have on the show Duana Welch. And we brought her on the show because she's written a book which is focused on being really practical about this. And it's based around a social and evolutionary science perspective. The book is called Love Factually, 10 Proven Steps from I Wish to I Do. Duana has a PhD teaching psychology at Austin, Texas universities. She's also a Psychology Today columnist. Coming back to her book, David M. Buss, the renowned evolutionary psychologist, said this of Duana's book. Love Factually is a great book anchored in solid science. It brims with practical advice in the form of concrete actions everyone can take to improve their love lives. If you plan to read one book to improve your mating life, this is the one to read. That's a pretty big quote from a very well-known evolutionary psychologist there. So it really attests to the practicality of this book, which as I say, isn't typical. And we'll be getting into these practical details in a moment. There are two ways to get the show notes, including the transcript, the MP3 download, and all of the links to everything we talk about on the show. Number one, just go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash podcast and pick out the episode there. Number two is go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash newsletter, pop your email in there, and you'll get all the show notes automatically every time we put an episode out. Now let's get into this interview. I'm Angel Donovan, and this is the Dating Skills Podcast. This is a 14-year ongoing mission to discover the truth about what works in dating, sex, and relationships, to become a better man. Join me as I leave no stone unturned, chase down every expert, role model, and mentor with insights to get us to that goal as fast as possible. This show is about bringing you the best of that information so that you can take it in and change your life for the better, step-by-step, episode-by-episode. Duena, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Angel. Yeah, so we're going to be talking about a subject which is love and commitment-driven. And from the podcast perspective, from the emails we get from guys and everything, I hear guys talking about like they want a serious relationship with a girl, and sometimes they talk about love and and sometimes commitment, but I don't think it's necessarily the same thing for everyone. So I wanted to talk about a little bit what you thought exactly what love and commitment could mean for people. Well, that's a great question. And I'm not sure that science has adequately 
address that. As you know, my writing comes from a, a scientific perspective. And uh, I think the poets and songwriters have done a better job of describing what love is than the scientists ever have. I forget who said it, but I can't say what love is, but I know what it is when I feel it. There are many different descriptions of love and also of commitment. I mean, for some people, living together is the commitment that they want. And for other people, what they mean by commitment is a marriage and a home and a family. And so that's really going to depend to some extent on the individual we're talking with. Could you give us some examples of what you think the typical guys would mean when they're talking about this kind of thing? So I'm guessing here. Yeah, of course. I'll, I'll throw in some guesses too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I just want to be clear that anytime I'm just guessing, I'm going to tell you that because the rest of the time I'm going to say things that sound like a guess, but they're really based on science. So this is my guess of what guys mean. Uh, I think when men are really young, late teens to mid twenties, what they mean by commitment is maybe they have a steady girlfriend possibly they're living together, but they still have open options as for the future. They don't anticipate necessarily spending the next five or six decades with this person. I think sometime around a man's late 20s, he shifts his idea of commitment more to a permanent relationship where he's closing off his options to explore the rest of his life with this one woman. And the reason I think so is based on evidence of when people get married. Right now in the United States, for example, the average age of first marriage for men is now 29. So that tells me that since we don't force people into marriage and they get to choose it, that more men are choosing to get married in their late 20s for the first time. And we know that when people get married, they typically do view this as something for the rest of their lives, not just something temporary. Great, great. So I'll throw in my guesses now. <laughs> I'm thinking also that guys, they talk about love and they talk about this relationship that they want to be in with a girlfriend. And sometimes they talk about it in kind of objective terms. Like I'm looking for this type of girl. I'm looking for someone who makes me feel like I, I've made it. This is a successful part of my life instead of it's something I'm settling for. I've kind of met my own standards. But I think at the end of it, many of these guys, in order to feel satisfaction, what they are, kind of need to feel is like the passion and the intimacy. Sometimes they don't want to kind of acknowledge that. And, and talk about it, I feel like. And so they kind of objectify it a little bit more. Like, um, so I'm looking at this standard of girl, but I think what would eventually make them more satisfied and maybe they're not going to say the word love or commitment, but something that will get them committed. And I've seen guys in our programs and stuff that this, this ends up happening to, so I can kind of see what's going on, is that it's just someone who they feel really passionate about. And it's not the same as the Hollywood experience you see in the films where you have all of these scenes where there's this amazing passion but they do feel a certain level of passion like they're kind of alive and it's a really in-depth relationship i think that's trying to demystify a little bit of what some of the guys want to experience it's not necessarily full-on romance all the time but it's definitely some passion and definitely some of that dating experience they're looking for yeah agreed i i think Actually, we all want to feel that tug at our heart and our groin when we see the person that we love. We don't just want to feel uh, warm and fuzzy. We want to want yeah, them. Great. Yeah. I also wanted to get to know you a little bit more. So, Duena, <laughs> um, we were practicing saying Duena's name before because I'm not very good at it, apparently. Well, nobody is. You're not alone. <laughs> yeah. An English-born guy is not going to be helpful. Um, so uh, how old are you? Where do you live? And what's your background a bit in terms of your own relationship lifestyle? I'm in Austin, Texas. I'm 46 years old. I spent a lot of years wandering around the relationship desert and trying to figure out what I wanted and then trying to find what I wanted once I was sure what it was. How I came to do all the work I do on relationship science really was an outgrowth of a heartbreak that I had in my mid to late 20s. 
And it was really quite transformative. At the time, I was getting my PhD from the University of Florida in, of all things, memory and aging. Really sexy, right? And I remember being so heartbroken and going to this, not a library, a bookstore and thinking, isn't there anything here for me? And I encountered a bunch of books that I thought were just awful, awful books, one of which I think we're talking about later. And uh, I thought, I'm a nerd. I've spent all these years from kindergarten till now at the time in my 20s in school. And I've studied this one thing in great detail. I wonder if anyone has studied love and relationships in great detail. And in fact, a lot of people had. I just hadn't heard of it because, well, I'm not sure. I don't know why social scientists weren't paying more attention to that research at the time, but I'd had no exposure to it. And I thought if I haven't had any exposure to it, I wonder who else hasn't. And I first used the information to help me. And then I started using it to help others after that. Great, great. Thank you. That's great. Why are you passionate about your topic? Why do you feel it's important today? Oh, love never goes out of style. Angel, you know that. It's what we live for and it's what people even die for. It's hard to think of many other things we could say that about except maybe our children. I'm wondering, did you read any other the books? Because there's this fair number of books that have been written over time. Did you read some of those? And was your book in a way to try to address some of the gaps you saw? How did that come about? Absolutely. I wrote the book partly to address gaps. What I noticed was that the relationship genre was filled with opinion, but it was short on proof. And I really wanted a book that would read like those other books, a very friendly, warm, down-to-earth tone that did not read like a science book, but where every statement of fact was backed by actual facts. It was not merely my opinion. So I wrote the book in a kind of layman's terms, but then after every factual statement, I put a reference that goes directly to the actual scientific reference for people who want to know more. And I keep it really friendly and light in tone, but it's reliable. It's stuff people can hang their hat on. Great, great. Let's dig into uh, the topic a bit more. What do you think gets in our way of looking for love and commitment? Well, I think the biggest thing is beliefs that we have, and they may be beliefs that we don't even know that we have. Unexamined beliefs can really derail the search for love. So for example, a lot of people have the belief that dependency is a dirty word, that this moment you start relying on someone, you've lost yourself and you've lost your independence. And basically you've kind of become this loser type person. So if someone has that belief, if they believe that dependency is a dirty word, or if they believe conversely or similarly, I should say, that relationships are really scary because they're not likely to work out, how much effort will we put into getting love and commitment? Whatever love and commitment means to you, how much effort do you put into it if you truly believe relationships don't work out, they're full of pain, and that if you got one, depending on this other person would be a raw deal for you? So to the extent people believe those things, they've really got to examine them. And uh, science actually runs directly contrary to all those beliefs I just stated. There's really, really excellent research on what happens when we do allow ourselves to depend on another person. What happens when we do allow ourselves to make various levels of commitment to another person. And uh, it's all really optimistic stuff. The outcome shows that we're better off by far not just emotionally, but in terms of our health, our longevity, our sex life, our career, our wealth. What else is there except maybe how good looking you are? You know, it's, it's very helpful to get in the right relationship and stay put. So are you talking about the research on marriages and longevity in health and happiness? Or are you referring also to other? Uh, yeah, so I'm referring primarily here to relationship research on marriage versus other styles of relating. So for example, 
data have been collected globally, not just here in the United States, but globally regarding several things, marriage versus cohabitation, marriage versus dating, marriage versus being entirely single and free, and cohabitation versus these other relationships as well. You could also toss in uh, being a widow or a widower or divorced. And I realize those other topics probably aren't as germane to our audience today. But when you compare all these groups, what you wind up with is a very clear picture in every single culture that's been studied. And that is marriage is the best deal that you're going to get in terms of health, wealth, happiness in general, career promotion, not only having more sex, but better sex. I think, you know, we emphasize to a great degree how much are you getting, but we don't emphasize enough how good is what you're getting. I just don't know anybody who doesn't want these things. And again, science is very clear on this, that marriage is actually the best deal going. It's funny, I get letters frequently because I also have a blog where people write, it's kind of Dear Abby style, but based on science. And people write in, I'm having this argument with my friends. I say that, uh, Married people get laid just fine. Thank you very much. And my friends say, no, no, it's the single people who get all the sex. And other people say, no, it's the cohabitors. And science has already answered this question very, very, very clearly. And the answer is single people are 10 to 20 times as likely to be entirely celibate in any given year compared to cohabitors and married people. Cohabitors and married people are about tied for the sheer amount of sex they're having, married people are are describing significantly more emotional and physical satisfaction from the sex they're having. And the most likely group to be monogamous, if that's what somebody wants, is the married group. Sociologist named Linda Waite has done extensive studies on, for example, how faithful people are in various styles of relationships. And she finds that cohabitors and married people are equivalent in saying that they expect their partner to be faithful to them and they expect to be faithful to their partner. But interestingly, again, in every society studied, that's not the way it really works out. The married people are significantly more faithful to each other than cohabitors are. So again, it really depends what you want. I know later on you're planning to address the distinctions between when you might want to cohabit and when you might want to marry. And I don't want to come off as if I'm entirely opposed to cohabitation, but the science really says that marriage is the best deal in in town. Yeah. One thing I'm just thinking as you're saying that is a lot of these studies are averages. So I wanted to point out some of the possible impacts of that. For one, if we're single, potentially like 5% of guys who feel secure as a single person, let's call it skills, for any reason, they, they find traversing, navigating the dating market relatively straightforward and simple. So they feel secure. They don't have a lot of anxiety about it. They generally have a good dating lifestyle. I would say that's not at all the average. The average is exactly the opposite, whether it's 90% or 95%, probably 95%. I'm not that happy with that situation. And so that could be heavily influencing the results, but it doesn't say that no one is actually happy in that situation. It just means like, The likelihood is, unless you are particularly good at this scenario, or you're particularly comfortable with this scenario and it suits you, then it's not going to be the best for you in terms of, as you say, things like health, longevity, happiness, and so on. And accumulation of wealth. Amassing wealth is much easier for most people with a partner. But you do bring up a very valid and interesting point, which is humans are complicated. To know what went into the making of this moment right now between you and me, we'd have to know our entire life histories and all the influences, the things that have influenced you, Angel, and the things that have influenced me. What social science does is, is it tries to eliminate the noise and look at a particular factor and how it influences most people 
most of the time, but there's nothing that tells you what every person does every time. That's called a crystal ball, right? right? So science just doesn't do that. It's not set up to do that, but it's very good at saying what works for the vast majority of people vast majority of time. Yeah. Just wanted to make sure uh, we make that point. I think the other interesting thing with marriage is it's a more stable lifestyle. So when it comes to wealth and things like that, I mean, personally, when I'm really focused on business and things like that, I want to be in a more consistent relationship. I don't want to have kind of like, there's more ups and downs with a dating lifestyle and it's just less organized uh, to put it with, with one word or the other, rather than something consistent, something stable, something more routine, which works very well with business or whatever other kind of goals you're, you're trying to achieve and other plans you are. So it makes perfect sense to me, even if we're talking about averages here, that that would be the situation where people would be the most successful in terms of wealth and so on. That's right. Yeah. And the other thing is that when people marry, they behave in a way that they don't when they're cohabiting typically. So for example, global studies show that, and these are studies in the Western world, because a lot of societies, you just don't have cohabitation. But when you look at the societies that, that do have it, what you see is that People who are cohabiting tend to keep their fortunes separate. They tend not to co-insure. For example, they don't put each other on their life insurance, their health insurance. They may not have life insurance. They don't put all the money into the same pot. They don't necessarily buy a home together, which they feel they're equally invested in. With marriage, you tend to get all of those things. And those things allow, you've tapped into a very important concept, the concept of a stable base. That stability acts as a springboard for achievements in the world. So, for example, people had been approaching me for the last 15 years to actually write the book, but I didn't write it until I had been happily married for many years. Part of that was I felt like who wants to get long-term relationship advice from someone who hasn't done it herself, even if she does know the nerdy side of it. Another big part of it was I just needed the, it's like what you just said, when you're really engaged in a business venture, you need the stability of someone behind you instead of wondering how your relationship's going you need to be able to take for granted that this other person is there for you right right exactly it is this is kind of like trust factor i guess which allows you to focus on other things in your life so you brought up the word dependency which i also wanted to clarify because i think a lot of guys will be thinking of needy behavior we've talked about this kind of thing before on the show versus non-needy behavior and how if you start becoming a dependent on your partner or someone you're dating that can come off as somewhat as a drain and push people away I'm sure they're associating that word dependency. So could you give us a bit more, perhaps you're talking more of the codependency model and and frame. Uh, Could you just explain a bit more about what that actually means for you? Well, what it means to scientists is relying on another person. And in fact, most science today has thoroughly debunked the idea of the codependent person. The codependent person is a person who is to some extent, dependent on someone else's use of a substance. So I'm talking about normal relational behavior, which is not that behavior. So in normal relational behavior, what dependent means is relying on someone and having them rely on you. And in point of fact, the ability to get comfortable with that is a big predictor of getting into and staying in a permanent mateship. Which, you know, ultimately, Angel, is what most people want. Very few people, male or female, really just want to date forever. We vary in terms of when we want to make a a final choice. But most of us really do want to make a final choice. And that final choice is going to involve getting really comfortable with the idea that, yes, I'm going to depend on you and you're going to depend on me. One of the times it wasn't clear to me, 
is times when I've been really healthy and things have been going really well. And then I can kind of go under my own steam a little bit better. But when just a few years into my marriage, I needed open heart surgery at the age of 42. It was, I had no idea that I needed open heart surgery. And when I needed that, I was so grateful to be in a position to be completely dependent on my husband. I couldn't ask for a glass of water. I couldn't ask for painkillers. All I could do was kind of Frankenstein like, oh, you know, (laughs) I, I couldn't do much for myself. And having him in my corner could have actually meant the difference between life and death. He was there with me at the hospital all the time, protecting me, watching over me, making sure that the right things happened and the wrong things didn't happen, and allowing me to just completely relax and heal the way I needed to. So I was entirely dependent at those moments. Other moments I'm less aware of being dependent, but I still am. For example, most couples wind up dividing certain tasks. So uh, in our particular unit, well, I started to say I take care of the grocery shopping, but that's not true anymore. He took it over. (laughs) But uh, I tend to take over things like noticing that the floors need attention. And he tends to do things like noticing that the cars need attention. That's fairly stereotypical and research shows that's what most people do. But it really, depending on each other for these simple day-to-day things, really allows both of us to, A, have a lot more free time. Because back when I was single and I did all those things myself, it was a real bummer. And uh, B, it does make us somewhat dependent on each other, right? Because I'm relying on him. So that sounds more like teamwork to me. Yeah, it is. And I think that's what the research is showing is that that dependency has gotten a bad rep because people see it as codependent, as you rightly pointed out, when really it's not. It's teamwork. It's thinking in terms of we rather than me, which allows you to accomplish a lot more and to have a lot more fun. So what kind of things, when I was reading your book, I noticed the attachment styles and how that can basically get in the way, the way someone perceives uh, relationships and their attachment style. So how can this interfere with relating to what we're talking about dependency here? I'm really glad that you asked that because I personally am reaching the conclusion that attachment style is behind a tremendous amount of pain both in dating and in cohabitation and in marriage. So your attachment style is your habitual way of relating to an intimate partner. And there are three core attachment styles. The first one is the most common one, and it's called the secure attachment style. And so if you have a secure attachment style, for you, dependency actually isn't a dirty word. You actually want that. You feel very comfortable making a long-term or permanent commitment. People with a secure attachment style are likely to have a pretty clear idea of what they want. They're likely to go about getting it in a really planned fashion. Things tend to go very well for them. And strangely enough, the more secure somebody is, the less time they spend on the dating market. Usually an extremely secure person starts dating fairly quickly find someone where they think, yes, this is it. This is exactly who I want. And they make a commitment to that person. And that would be... Yeah, that sounds like a very confident, self-assured, I know what I want and I'm not very variable. So it's not the kind of the scenario where I start dating a girl and six months later, I'm like, I don't like this type of girl at all. This really isn't for me. And that kind of, and that goes around in a cycle of every six months or something when you're dating different girls and not, and not dating. It's rather something you're pretty stable in the way you look at things. And once you've decided girls for you, you're like, oh yeah, this is a good relationship. I'm going to be happy for a long time. Exactly. And what really stunned me because I'm not secure. What really stunned me was how many people are secure. It's a full 
two-thirds of people who are secure. Oh, that's good news. Yeah, it's great news, actually. Most people win what I call the attachment style lottery. Lottery wins are rare. This is very common. Now let's talk about the other two styles. And the other two styles tend to populate the dating world because these secure people don't tend to be on the market very long. So research shows that actually the other two styles tend to be on the market longer. The second style, which is what I historically have been, is anxious. Anxious people tend to feel that they truly want what secure people offer. They truly want a deep, committed, I know I want you, you know you want me type relationship where there's just no question that we're together. The struggle of the anxious person, I can say from science and from experience, is wondering whether this other party wants you as much as you want them. You're kind of constantly beset with worries that you want the other person more than they want you. And that can create some pretty clingy, desperate behavior. And let me tell you, Angel, there's never been a perfume called desperation and there never will be. (laughs) So that presents some special challenges because ironically, people with an anxious style are more likely than people with the other two styles to, for example, line up another partner, someone they're having an affair with, because they think, hey, if this person doesn't want me really, I need to If they're going to bail, I need to have somebody else lined up. And the number one thing around the world that will get you dumped is cheating on someone. I mean, that's just a fact. So it's ironic that sometimes people with an anxious style do the very thing that's going to get them rejected. Then there's the third style, which is avoidant. And avoidant can be further broken down. So there are people who are avoidant from fear and there are people who are avoidant from a desire for independence. People who are avoidant from fear, they don't actually avoid relationships. They get into them, but they're afraid of this other person needing them too much. Just when the other person starts to really show a lot of desire for them and a lot of need for them to be involved in the day-to-day aspects of their life, they kind of hold this other person at arm's length. It's not because they don't care about the other person. It's because they're afraid of being needed. They're afraid that they're just not going to be able to live up to the needs. It's a suffocating feeling. So I'm told a feeling of being trapped and suffocated. And uh, it's scary, frankly, the underlying fear for both people who are anxious and people who are avoidant is fear. So that's the avoidant person who has fear. But there is yet another type of avoidant person. And this is the avoidant person who, yeah, they want sex. Yeah, they want relating at some level, but they value independence much more than they value relying on another person. And so they're not really afraid of another person needing them. They just really don't want it. So I've seen a lot of examples of this over the year. Some people with both avoidance styles do get married, but they get married in a way where the marriage certificate really doesn't change the fact that they're there, but not there. So for example, I knew one person with an avoidance style who got a vasectomy. He did not tell his wife about getting. That's kind of the ultimate holding your partner at arm's length. That sounds like unhealthy uh, avoidance there. I can see ways in which you can be independent, but it's still healthy as long as boundaries are set. I'm thinking more of the polyamory community or people who just... We had Cunning Minx from one of the podcasts, uh, Polyamorous, a podcast on recently. And she's a very independent woman and she likes it that way. So she dates with men who already have a wife and she feels, I guess she likes her independence. And it seems a pretty healthy mix up the way she's organized her life. But not telling someone about a key decision or something that's going to affect them as well is a bit of a different scenario. So uh, what happens a lot with people who are avoidant is that a lot of times they're not really in touch. Neither are anxious people, by the way not really in touch with their own fears or needs. And so they keep playing out a script, which 
often is hurtful to them and is hurtful to the other party as well because they're really not conscious of it. You really can't change something you're not even conscious of. So I think you've tapped into a very healthy way of dealing with avoidant attachment, which is date other people who are avoidant. However, science is showing, and that's what I say to do my book. And then since then, I've read some science that shows that avoidance almost never choose to date someone else who is avoidant, like the person you just spoke of, who's dating people who already have a secure partner and who are not looking for that. And she knows that she values her independence and she wants to keep that. So she finds partners who cannot come to her for more than that. That's a strategy that's is when you get into trouble, when you have an avoidant attachment style, but you keep getting involved with people who want something deep and intense. And uh, that's just a recipe for pain. And other recent research shows that most people who date for extensive periods of time who wind up back on the mating market repeatedly have an avoidant uh, attachment style, not an anxious or secure. Because what anxious people do usually is what I did. We date a bunch of avoidant people and we figure out that's not working for us. And even though we may not have the language to use, we may not know, oh, that's avoidant. We realize that when we see certain behaviors, it doesn't work for us. When we see a mismatch between our needs for intimacy and their needs for intimacy, eventually we learn by experience and we think, okay, that's not working for me. And we wind up choosing someone who before might have seemed a bit staid, a bit boring, because they're secure. Secure people don't usually come on real strong. They're very secure about themselves and they don't, they are who they are. And they may not be the sexiest guy in the room, but eventually a lot of avoidant people will choose that secure person. You know, the guys that you hear from who in their teens couldn't get laid at all, couldn't get a girlfriend at all. They were told they were the nice guy. They were told, oh, you're good friend material, but I'm really looking for something more exciting. Those same guys in their 30s are the it guy because a lot of avoidant, a lot of anxious women, excuse me, anxious women like me have figured out, wow, you know what? You've got what I'm looking for when I need you, when I call you. You don't call me needy. You don't call me controlling. You don't refuse to take my call. You, in fact, say, what's going on, babe? How can I help you? What can I do for you? And it feels so good. So what happens with a lot of people who are avoidant, male as well as female, is they wind up on the mating market for a long time. And uh, there are ways to change your attachment style if you don't like it. For example, I didn't like my attachment style. Can we take one step back? How could we figure out our attachment style? I'm thinking many years ago, I was a management consultant and I was in connection with one of my friends. He was a uh, executive coaching consultant. He would coach execs on how to further their careers and, and so on. And he would use psychometric tests. I can't remember the exact name of this. I've done many in my time because I did an MBA and so on. So I've taken many of these tests, but this was the most interesting one I ever did because he, he put me through it. And it actually told me a lot about myself that I hadn't really figured out. So this, I think it was called the PS. 45 or something like that. I'll have to dig it out and put it in the show notes. But it was supposed to be one of the most rigorous ones at the time for execs. And uh, interestingly, he told me stories of where he would have execs cry when they got the results because they felt like no one had ever known them on that level before, not their wives, no one else, not even themselves. I was a bit dubious about that, but I have to say like I had some slight tears come to my eyes. Not that I was crying, but I felt like this feeling when he, he finally revealed the results and stuff. And for me, what it told me was that I was extremely independent. I had quite an unusual profile. So I had a high need for independency. I also had a very high need for intimacy. So I was a bit of at a odd ends there because obviously I can't have both. 
So that, that taught me a lot about myself and my own, because I would say I, in some terms, I've been an avoidant, independent mindset. But at the same time, I've always wanted some intimacy. And it's been a hard thing for me to resolve because you, you can't really have both. Well, you can in some polyamorous situations and things like that, if you nurture the relationships, that's kind of how I've tried to do it. And at other times I've I've tried to go for the full relationship and, and resolve it that way. But once you know about this, one way to figure this out, if you can't figure it out yourself, maybe to do some kind of psychometric test or something like that, which points out these types of values. And I'll, I'll throw that one into the show notes. I don't know if you know any others that might help with this kind of thing, or maybe a therapist would be, but I think you know, choosing a therapist or something like that can be kind of dodgy. You get different subjective experiences depending on you choose. Yeah. So, uh, Actually, there is a really good lengthy attachment style questionnaire, and uh, I'll be sure after the show to send you the name of it because I can't remember it quite now. But the most famous researchers in attachment style are uh, Shaver and Hazan. And in my book, I include a short version, and I can read that one to you right now if you like, if people just want to on the spot diagnose themselves. If it's not too, yeah, if it's short enough. Yeah, yeah it's, it's very short. And uh, so this is just four questions long. And what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to identify which one you match the most closely, keeping in mind that many of us are a combination of one or more, but that one of these will probably speak to you the most. And so that would be your predominant style. And this is based on the work of Shaver and Hazan and others. And uh, it maps onto the longer questionnaire very well, which is why I've included it. So here we go. A, I find it relatively easy to get close to others. I'm comfortable depending on them and having them depend on me. I don't often worry about being abandoned or about someone getting too close to me. So that's an A. So we have to confirm those or negate those. Tick them as a checklist. Yeah, so if this sounds very much like you, then you would tick this off. And if it doesn't, you would move on. B, I find that others are reluctant to get as close as I would like. I worry that my partner doesn't really love me or won't want to stay with me. I want to merge completely with another person, and this desire sometimes scares people away. That's B. C. I am uncomfortable getting close to others. I want emotionally close relationships, but I find it difficult to trust others completely or to depend on them. I worry that I'll be hurt if I allow myself to become too close to others. That's C. And finally, D. I'm comfortable without close emotional relationships. It is very important to me to feel independent and self-sufficient, and I prefer not to depend on others or have others depend on me. So that sounds like it fits with the four categories you gave us earlier. Yes, so exactly. So A, if you gave A, that's secure. That's what about two-thirds of adults have. And in fact, interestingly, uh, the corresponding version for infants, it's about what two-thirds of babies have. And then there are styles uh, B, which is anxious, which is my style. Although I recently took the full test and it turns out that as I had suspected, I have over the years succeeded in moving more into the A category. So I'm feeling very happy about that. And if you want, I'll talk about how to change your attachment style if you want. Yeah, let's do that afterwards. Yeah. And then C and D both deal with avoidant styles. So C is very clearly the avoidant fearful. This person really wants intimacy, but at the same time, they just aren't comfortable with someone depending on them. When somebody depends on them, it feels like suffocation. It feels fearful. It feels like, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to live up to this. I don't know if I want this. I signed up for more than I can give. I'm going to have to change my life too much. I can't live up to all this pressure. And so that's C. And then D is the person who really, they just don't want intimacy. 
for example, I don't think you're a D person because you expressed to me very clearly, you really want this. This is something you really want intimacy. Yes, you want your independence, but you also feel a deep need for connection with other people. And so uh, D would be someone who's really pretty clear that they don't want that. I've interviewed a number of people with a D attachment style, the avoidant slash independent attachment style over the years. And uh, they say things like, I never wanted to get married. I always knew I wanted to be single for a lifetime. When somebody says, what do you think about long-term relationships? What I think is, no, thank you. I don't want that. It doesn't mean that they don't relate at all, by the way. You know, evolution pretty much weeded out people who really don't want any level of connection. I was watching a really interesting documentary on people who define as asexual. And I was really intrigued by that because of the whole idea that there are people who really don't need people. I got deeply into the documentary and it turned out, no, they still need people. Of course they need people. And they still have all the different attachment styles. It's just a matter of how comfortable they are being sexual with someone else. But we all need other people at some level. So even somebody who is on the far independent part of the spectrum, they still need at least sex. They still need at least somebody who cares about how they're doing some of the time. I mean, that's just, that's being a human. I'll just put more of how I handle this out because it seems like this is a situation. Uh, I don't think my situation applies to most people. I'm very independent. I always want to move geographically. I'm getting involved in different projects and they're super important to me. My problem is that I would love to have great intimate relationships, but how do I find people who can fit with that? and not interrupt it. So there is this fear. I mean, there's just this impossibility. It's like, you can't stop me. I finished with my last girlfriend last year because I was just like, look, I got to do some stuff. You're in Europe. I'm going over there. I'm not going to create an environment. I'd have to start changing. So I think part of it is like, it's a dependency thing. You have to reach some kind of consensus and let go of some things that are important to you. So I, so maybe it depends on how important some things in your life are. So I'm not trying to interrupt the uh, structure there. I think it's a great structure, but I, like, I'm not sure how I would fit into it myself. Where would you put me? I would probably say that you're a balance of C and D. You very much value your independence. At the same time, you really do want intimacy. And it might be a little bit fearful for you to contemplate a life where your partner had enough pull that you had to change some of the things that you were doing. The truth is to be deeply intimate with someone, even if they never ask you through word or even action to change what you're doing for them, things come up that if you're truly intimate, you realize that you have to change for them. If my husband had been planning to start a new business right during my open heart surgery and recovery, even if I'd never asked, my guess is he wouldn't have done it right then because I really needed him and he was very comfortable with my, me needing him. I will say one of the things that a person might try in order to uh, embrace intimacy and kind of balance that with a need for independence might be understanding that relationships in many ways, when you get deeply committed, actually set you free. You're free from the need to look for sex. You're free from the need to look for another partner. You're free from, frankly, the need to impress another person. I am impressed with my husband, I have to say it. But it's not as if he needs to constantly strive for that like he did when we first met anymore. And I don't have to strive to impress him consistently like I did. And there's a freedom and a comfort in that. Uh, you're free from wondering who's going to be there for you in several years or more. So there's a lot of freedom. There's a freedom of you can basically assume that the sex is going to be on tap instead of wondering. 
there's a lot of freedom in knowing we're melding our fortunes and therefore we are going to amass more wealth and we are likely to be healthier because of the stability in our lifestyle. So I think part of what's going on is not necessarily with you, but with people who have an avoidance style is there are assumptions that becoming intimate will be kind of this life-sucking, soul-sucking. That doesn't like a mistake. And it's also, I think it's looking at it from a limited perspective. I think if you're proactive, you can make it work. And it's maybe not within the standard confines of the standard social structures, marriage and, and all of these things, but you just make it work in your own way. And it's just about finding someone who's going to work with that. You've got to just try no matter where you come from. I don't want to completely distract, derail this whole thing by talking about my weird situation, because I don't think it applies to a lot of people. But if someone is from this questionnaire figured out which rough attachment style they have, what would be the next step? Saying that the A is the one where you're going to be happier and that's where they've decided they want to be as well. You've already made that journey. What are some good practical tips to help people try and make that journey themselves? Number one tip by far, find someone secure and get in a relationship with them. Secure partners tend to see the other person as their responsibility. They actually think it's their job to make you happy and it works for them. Again, we're taught if you make it your project to make someone else happy, that's unhealthy. But actually, the healthiest relationships out there tend to have at least one secure person in it. And relationship research is very clear. They view it as job one to make you happy. They care about whether you're happy day to day. So uh, that's my number one tip is get involved with someone secure unless you really don't want intimacy, in which case, please find someone else who feels the same way and have the level of relationship that you want because you're going to cause everybody else and, and yourself a lot of pain and angst right. if you don't. Uh, the number two tip would be because I didn't want to wait to find that person to start working on myself. So there's a technique from cognitive behavioral therapy, which has been established in experiments, not just correlational studies, but real cause effect experiments. It's been found to work for changing lots of things about yourself. So anything you want to change, you can pretty much use these two steps. And over time, it will change. Here's step number one, notice. Step number two is redirect. Notice, redirect, notice, redirect. So what you notice is, let's say that, um, can I shrink you here for a minute, Angel, even though I'm not a shrink? Absolutely. Here we go. <laughs> okay. All right, Angel. So let's say that uh, you start dating someone new and you've decided, you know, you really don't want casual sex. You really are ready for a girlfriend. And you start dating someone new. And one day she suggests, hey, let's spend some more time together. You were ready to go home and she wants to spend some more time together. And she's not coming back to your place. You're not comfortable with that yet. And so you find yourself thinking, oh, my God, it's already started. She already needs me too much. The first step would be simply to notice that you're feeling that way. That's it. Just notice. And notice what I, also what I didn't say here. Don't criticize yourself for feeling that way. Don't beat yourself up for feeling that way. Research is also very clear that if you want to change something, feeling like crap about yourself is the way not to change it. So you just want to notice without judgment. And then you want to redirect to a thought that's aligned with the reality of the situation. So maybe, in fact, she has already offered to move in with you after three dates, in which case, yeah. I would feel suffocated too. You know, that would be a scenario where your reaction of feeling suffocated would be realistic. But if on the other hand, you've been out a few times and she just said, hey, I'm having so much fun with you, Angel. I just want to spend a couple more hours. Then maybe you could say to yourself, you know what? This doesn't necessarily mean a loss of all my independence. This is just a little more time. Relax, let go a little bit. Yeah. So it seems the thing there is to be aware and, and conscious of what your mind's just kind of running through. So when you're saying notice, it's like to be consciously aware. I'm like, oh, like I'm thinking about these things. I'm not really purposefully thinking about them. They're just kind of springing up. 
then to run that over with what the reality is, think about it consciously for a second and actually put some thought into it and like reason, I guess people think about the rational mind a bit, rationalize it a little bit like, okay, so is that really the case? Is that not the case? And, and redirect it as appropriate. Kind of run it over and put the reality on top of it to rub it out. <laughs> exactly. I remember this one man I was dating and he was awesome. And we really got on very well. And he shared with me one day, he said, you know, Dwayne, you seem so secure to other people, but you really have a deep insecurity about you. And he was not being unkind. He was really just making an observation. And I actually felt better after he said that rather than worse because he wasn't attacking me. And I said, yeah, you're absolutely right. I need a lot of reassurance. I have an anxious style. And so I'm the person who needs the follow-up phone call. I'm the person who needs the email and the text message saying, I had a great time. Let's do it again soon. I'm the person who needs a lot of handholding, literally and figuratively. And so what I would have to do in this situation, as will the other anxious people listening right now, hi guys, is uh, I would have to say things to myself like, huh, I'm feeling, I'm feeling really scared right now. I'm feeling like this guy doesn't like me. Wow. But he's already sent three emails and two texts today. Probably not a really good indicator that he's lost interest, you know? So I would just have to come back to reality. And that really, it really helps. The difficult thing about this two-step process is that even though it sounds easy, it's difficult to shift your thinking to becoming aware. It really is hard to do that. This is because I've actually run this experiment on a few things in my life in the past. Uh, it's because it's based around, I know, positive psychology and some other things have done this. Yes. So for me, it was I have it of ruminating sometimes when I was working as a management consulting. I'd be just walking along the road and I'd start thinking about something negative. Maybe it was like some stress or some politics at work or something like that. And before I knew it, like I'd been wandering around for five minutes, kind of going around in circles, talk, thinking about that stuff. When I read the books about it, I just learned to say stop in my head, like notice it, say stop, and just think about stuff I really wanted to think about. It was really miraculous. I fixed that habit. It was gone within a couple of months. But I did have to, it was important enough to me, put it that way, because I saw the importance of this, to keep notice of that throughout the day. So be reminded, so be aware of that kind of thing happening. So I think it has to be kind of one of your goals for a little while. Maybe it's two weeks, maybe it's a month. But you need to think like, oh, this is something I want to fix this month and have it top of mind for a little while so that when it does come up, you're going to notice it. Otherwise, if it's not really top of mind, if it's just something you're half doing, maybe you're going to miss a lot of it a lot of the time because you've got these other priorities that you're focusing more of your attention on. Yeah, it's surprisingly difficult to do this supposedly simple two-step. And uh, with attachment style, if you're really going to change it, it's not going to be just a month. I would say it's top of mind for a month and it's a very active background program on your, your emotional desktop the rest of the time. I know right. that at this point, both having found and married a secure partner and having worked on it, I feel zero insecurity in my marriage. I feel zero insecurity. I feel entirely secure. Yeah. But when I play, and doesn't that feel great? It feels it, it feels so much better. Right? I gotta tell you. So you have to kind of crystallize the value, I think, for the people in the audience. Imagine like when you don't feel any anxiety throughout the day, you just feel relaxed. You can get on with all the stuff that's more important to you instead of wasting your time worrying about whatever. You can see the huge value of that to your life and how it would just transform your life enable you to get a lot more done, a lot more success in your life and so on just by this one thing. So it sounds like a lot of investment, but definitely very worthwhile. I don't know if you've looked at meditation, mindfulness or, or other forms and their influence on this. It strikes me that I didn't do it back then, so I don't know what the influence would be, but I know that I'm a lot more aware thanks to mindfulness meditation and some of the other meditations. So I think if these things did come up, I just, I just noticed them quicker. So it might be helpful. I think 
so. Yeah. Mindfulness meditation has been shown to help people with their ability to think clearly and concentrate. So I would think that would help. Yeah. Good point. Awesome. I think we've done the attachment style. So hopefully you guys at home have got some practical value being able to steer kind of like steer through that. I think the attachment style is also interesting because you've noted a few things like your anxiety about basically being comforted with phone calls and reassured and with text messages and things like that. And I think a lot of the guys who've had some dating experience can relate to women they've dated or they've come in contact with. And you can kind of feel this need for reassurance over the text conversation or over the phone conversation, right? And every girl's different. So you should also be able to calibrate for what type of attachment style the other person is that you're talking to and use that as a selection mechanism. Oh, is this the right person for me or not? Yeah, absolutely. I will say that there's research on who tends to get on really, really well. And so I'll tell you, two secure people get along famously. A secure person and an anxious person also get along just swimmingly. They don't have almost any problems because if you're secure, anxious people want what you are selling. You know, it's, it's the perfect relationship where you get into really serious trouble, such serious trouble that I would say, uh, don't go there is anxious and avoidant. They are oil and water. They are a disaster, but it's very common. Interestingly, science finds it's very common for anxious and avoidant people to get involved for at least a brief time. That sounds like it fits the stereotype of a girl loving the bad boy, an anxious girl loving the bad boy. And he's, he's got his independence thing. He's not showing any emotion. He's not showing any commitment. And he's very aloof. And she's feeling more and more needy. And does that kind of fit that stereotype? Yes. And what's interesting is there are more anxious women than there are anxious men. And there are more avoidant men than there are avoidant women. Although there are both sexes who display both of these styles. But additionally, we're also talking about evolutionary psychology. Uh, women have rewarded men sexually and otherwise for being independent, for being successful. And men have rewarded women for holding off and being less sexually available than they might initially want. They've rewarded that with often a very long-term commitment or mateship. So to some extent, what you see is that attachment styles tap into our inherited mating psychology, where women do need a lot of reassurance so that they feel safe investing in you sexually absolutely true. They need those phone calls. They need those text messages. They need the flowers. They need the extra attention, especially when you first get sexual with them. Lay on the affection if you want continued sex and continued connection. Right. Especially if someone's got an independent style, especially the fearful style or the anxious style. I could imagine a guy, he would sleep, hook up with a girl, he would sleep with a girl. And the next day he might not call her, might not text her because he just feels fearful about it. That's definitely the opposite of what you want to do in that situation. You want to be in contact with her because she's going to be feeling that the same deal from her side. And you should get over your anxiety or whatever, any of these kind of rules that some people advise you to, to like take your time and getting back with people and stuff. If you just slept with the girl, you can be normal and show that and basically help her to feel more comfortable about it. And that would work better with that situation. If you want a relationship, that's what to do. If you want a relationship, regardless of your attachment style, what you do right after you have sex with a woman is uh, you show her a lot more attention. If you don't want a relationship, then you don't. Yeah, it depends on what you want, is what I'm saying. There's so many things about relationships. It depends what you want. You know, my book is called Love Factually, and the subtitle really tells you what the book's about, 10 Proven Steps from I Wish to I Do. It's really about people who are looking for a long, long, long-term mateship. But if you wanted something shorter term, there are a lot of people who've written about that as well. And it really just depends on what you want. 
Great, so another aspect of relationships is how healthy they are for you. And I saw some great material in terms of the practical details of what makes a relationship satisfactory and healthy for you. Well, there are really five big things that you should be looking for in a healthy relationship. So what I'm saying is if the person that you're seeing lacks any of these, you're probably going to want to consider ending that relationship or not getting any deeper into it. So one of the big things would be someone who heals rather than worsens whatever your issues happen to be. We all have issues. For example, I know that I just can't be with someone who pulls back on me when I need more intimacy. That's just something I can't do. It's an issue for me. And so I need someone who could heal that part of myself. So I dated people who uh, increasingly, I learned how to date people who could give me that. I don't know what the men in your audience, what their issues are. Maybe it's they've been rejected a lot by women when they were younger. And so when women seem to be cold and aloof, they taps into all their bad experiences earlier in life. In that case, you don't want to date a bitchy woman. We get in relationships because they make us happy. Ultimately, isn't that what it's about? We do not, in fact, get into relationships for free therapy. Right, right. So again, we're always talking about this. But there, for instance, you should be selecting women based on what you need, you know, and thinking about it rather than just taking what society has kind of programmed you with. So in that example, like, I don't know, you're at college, everyone's chasing the same girls who may be independent party girls. And maybe that is really, really something that you don't need because it's just going to worsen your issues of anxiety. It's not going to be good for you right at this point. So it just strikes me like we talked about attachment before. So this one would kind of fit with you being an anxious attachment style and you going for someone who is an anxious style as well. That's obviously going to be a really unhealthy, that's going to worsen your own issues, right? It actually would be okay if I went for somebody anxious because we both want a lot of contact. What would be a disaster is if I went for somebody avoidant. That just wouldn't work for me. And notice I'm not saying avoidant people are bad people. I'm saying it wouldn't work for me. What other examples do you have, Jeff? So another example of that might be if you grew up with someone who, a parent, who is extremely controlling and that that just pushes all your buttons. Don't date someone who's extremely controlling that pushes all your buttons. We all have emotional needs. And a lot of times the way we know what our emotional needs are is when we start feeling a lot of anger or pain, they're tapping into some kind of emotional need we have that's not being met right now. You may have grown up, not you, but people in general may have grown up with a parent who was very invalidating. You would say, come home from school and say, I'm being bullied. And your parents would say, just suck it up instead of tell me more about that. Or most of us didn't grow up with parents who were ultimately validating. That's not to say they were bad parents. They were doing the best they could. Most of us are doing the best that we can most of the time with most everything we're doing. But we all have issues from our upbringing. Don't date someone who brings those issues to the fore. If you were raised by someone abusive, do not choose a woman who is going to emotionally abuse you. Choose something that betters your life, not someone who worsens it. That sounds obvious, but a lot of people don't do it. So that's my first recommendation. Then my second is also, I think, really important because if you think about it logically, it makes so much sense, but most people don't do it. And that is pick someone whose past will not ruin your future. Okay, so I've got a couple of ideas in my head for that one. What would be the biggest examples? Okay, so let's say that you really value a woman who is going to sleep with you and not with anyone else. Now, that might not be your personal value, but let's just for the sake of argument, let's say that, that that's what you want. You want someone who's going to be sexually faithful to you and only to you. And you find out that in her three prior relationships, she cheated on every one of the guys she was with. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, you have a crystal ball. 
Yeah. You know what her future behavior is going to be. Even better, when you met her, she was dating someone else and you basically stole her from that guy. Uh, guess what? <laughs> That's a perfect example to getting the behavior you don't want. Exactly. The single biggest predictor of what someone is going to do is what they have already done. It's the law of psychology. It is truly mathematically the best indicator of what someone will do is what was their behavior in a similar past circumstance. Now, this doesn't mean... I mean, there are exceptions. Let's say that she's had 10 real relationships and that uh, by real relationships, I mean, there was some level of commitment and agreement not to have sex with anyone else in these relationships. And let's say that she cheated in one of these relationships. And let's say that her attitude about the infidelity was that she regrets it. She feels deeply humiliated and ashamed by it. It's been several years and she's never done it again. That's a different ballgame. She's got a lot of recent past behavior that goes contrary to that one exception. But if you've got someone with a pattern, the pattern is the behavior you're going to see. That's a truth. Similarly, if you notice that they're being really unkind and disrespectful to a lot of people in their lives, I'm going to tell you this for sure. More than 40 years of really great relationship science all boil down to this. If you can find and be someone kind and respectful, your love life is going to go great. And if you can't, it won't. So there you're talking about the rule, basically, if you go out with a girl on a date and she's not cool with the waiter or waitress, that's probably a negative sign. Is that the kind of scenario you're thinking of? Yes. Or if she's totally hateful about her ex. Right. Exactly. That's a good point. Yeah. Or if everybody she ever met before you was a scumbag, but you're going to be different. Now she's eventually going to cast you as a scumbag. So just don't don't fall for it. You have a crystal ball and it's called the past. Use it. So I find it was it's always helpful to talk about the past on dates. You should feel pretty free about when you're meeting someone new, talking about past relationships and stuff. I always feel like it's a kind of first step conversation to have and it gives you a lot of important information. It gives her too. Yeah. One of the best questions that I learned to ask and that I later talk about my book and with my clients is... If your ex were here right now, what would they say was the reason for your breakup? And it's amazing. People will give very honest answers often to that question. And I found that whenever I asked the question, in fact, that was a big issue between me and whoever I asked that question to. And sometimes I found out that, well, there was an issue that there was just for me no dealing with. It was just a deal breaker for me. I'm not indicating that my deal breakers would be everyone's, but there are some things that really should be deal breakers for everyone. And one of them is if they're not kind and respectful in general, if they're not kind and respectful, even when they're not getting their way, for example, then they're not kind and respectful. You need to, to move on. So a couple of the other ones I was thinking of were more, more tangible, someone, someone's past in terms of STDs or someone's past in terms of they had a pregnancy and they, they have a baby. Some people feel like they don't have enough opportunities. So these things are going to heavily influence your future. So when I come across these situations and I've been talking with people, they feel like the emotional attachment to a person will override these kind of things. But if they understood potentially the impact on their lives going forward of these things, which right now, because they're emotional, they're passionate, they're like, oh, it's not such a big deal. I'll get into that later. I don't know. What would you say to those kind of more tangible situations? I don't know if there are other tangible situations that would fit into this one. Oh, that is uh, really troubling. When do you reveal the ugly truth? We Most of us have some version of an ugly truth uh, or a truth that's inconvenient or difficult. And when do you reveal that? There's not a lot of research on that. So I actually did a survey of my own about that. And uh, what I found is that most people in my survey, 
And I asked them to give advice, say how they had dealt with bringing up a, a difficult thing like I have a child or I had a, an abortion or I've had a sexually transmitted infection, whether or not they still have it. And um, it's really difficult, Angel, because on the one hand, you don't want to leave the truth so long that it is manipulative and lying by omission not to tell it. On the other hand, you don't want to tell the truth so soon that the person doesn't have any clue of whether they would really be interested in the long term with you. So I'm going to tell you what my readers and survey attendees advised and what they said happened to them as a result. The number one strategy that they used was waiting to tell until some level of emotional intimacy, not sexual, but emotional intimacy had been established, meaning that they felt comfortable revealing something that personal and then going ahead and telling it. And When they had done that in their own lives, and they had a lot of issues that they'd done this over, but when they did that in their own lives, not one of them had been rejected. Many of them had been rejected if they had come out with the truth on the first couple meetings. The fact is, no matter who you love, they're going to have an issue. All of us have issues. Now, there are some that are worse than others. I have done uh, 10 years in prison is a bigger issue than once I had chlamydia, but I don't anymore, right? So some issues are harder to talk about than others, but I will say it does seem like for some people, what's worked out is wait until there's some level of emotional connection and intimacy, and then reveal your truth in as non-dramatic a way as you can. What I found is I recently went on a date with a girl and she actually told me about her last partner having herpes and they were sleeping protected and and so on quite early on in that. I felt like the reason she revealed that is because I'm pretty non-judgmental and I reveal a lot of stuff about myself. I actually try to put some dark, the worst stuff out there pretty quickly, whatever it may be uh, for that person. I feel it helps. That's a helpful tactic to get to know people quicker. And these things come up because they feel more comfortable telling you about it. That was kind of a deal breaker for me. I didn't want to go forward with that. That would have been something I would have, if I didn't know, maybe I wouldn't have gone forward with the relationship. So it really did affect my decision. And I felt like just being forward myself helped to get to that information quicker from both our sides. Oh, you're absolutely right. So uh, there's a form of therapy where it's not practiced much anymore, but a humanist named Sidney Girard uh, pioneered a form of therapy where the therapist would reveal personal things, which would help the client feel more comfortable revealing personal things. And if you want to know really intimate details about someone very, very quickly, revealing intimate details about your own life will tend to get to intimate details of other people's lives very quickly. So if what you want to do, again, it depends on what you want to do. If what you want to do very quickly is to kind of eliminate candidates who have a deal breaker, one way is to reveal a lot about yourself and listen to what they say in response. Yeah. I would also encourage people to find someone who desires the same level of intimacy and the same type of relationship that they do. So, for example, if you want a level of intimacy where you can call each other every day, you can see each other whenever you're in town, you can live together when you're living in the same country, but you also want your freedom to travel and to make alternate plans to, at a moment's notice, be off then you need to hold out for that standard in a partner. You need to find someone who, for example, in that case, it it wouldn't be a good plan to find someone who wants to get married and spend their lives in one city. Again, so many of these things sound obvious, but because humans are not primarily logical, we're really primarily emotional, 
a lot of times when we first meet someone and we're really excited about them, we ignore a lot of really vital information. So part of the vital information to try to obtain on the first few meetings is what would the ideal relationship look like to you? And if the ideal relationship for this person would be, well, ideally, I would like to be married but not have children. And you want to be married and have children. And I have heard from men where this happened. They married someone who they did not ask their bride to be. Do you ever want children? They just assumed women want children. And it turned out not to be true. And they wound up getting divorced over this. You need to make sure that you're on the same page about the really big things in life. Similarly, there are some people like me, I enjoy traveling, but I want to primarily live in one spot. I want to live in the same house with my husband. I want to know that our free time is for each other unless by mutual agreement. And so I need someone who feels that same way. My husband and I have had precisely zero arguments about this in the eight years almost that we've been together. We've had no arguments about this. And the reason is he already wanted the same thing. So, you know, a lot of the fights that people have are fights based on a core mismatch in personality, attachment style, or a desire for a particular lifestyle. So make sure you've got all that lined up. There's really no need to spend your life fighting with someone. You can find what you want. How about doing that right from the start? It's great. It works wonderfully. I'm thinking of an example just with texting because I think a lot of people start some of their relationship with texting these days. Uh, so it can be useful to understand a bit of someone's personality through the texting mechanism. So just in terms of texting frequency, for example, now I'd be someone who I'd, I don't text a lot because I tend to be really focused on what I'm doing. So I'll basically not text unless it's evening or it's a weekend when I've got scheduled free time kind of thing. Otherwise, I don't even look at my phone. Often I'll come across women who have a need to text a lot more often, right? So they've got a more frequent intimacy standard uh, to their lives when they're in a relationship. They're often texting little things happen during the day and stuff like that. That doesn't work well with me. They're going to get upset and they're probably going to get a little bit, they're going to come back home and be upset with me and then it's going to cause disruption for me as well. So I think that's a good example of where you could see there's a mismatch kind of early on. Yes, actually. There's a book that keeps springing to mind as we're talking that I really think you and your readers who are interested in attachment style specifically would like, and it's called Attached by Amir Levine. And uh, they actually have that exact case study that you just described. That case study is in the book where he talks about a couple where the man has an avoidant attachment style and the woman has an anxious attachment style, and it's not really working out for them. And one of the things that she really wants is to communicate throughout the day. And he just wants to work. He just wants to get his job done. He doesn't understand why she needs contact throughout the day because he's trying to make things happen. He, he knows she's there for him. He's not worried about that. And he is really, frankly, getting really irritated with her that she does want that. And they're having a lot of fights about it. And so this couple came up with a strategy that really worked very well for them. And that was he put some pre-set text messages onto his phone. And he told her this, you know, he said, I'm going to put a text message on my phone that says, I'm thinking about you right now. And I'm going to just hit that button several times a day whenever I happen to be thinking about you. And it's not an invitation for further text messaging. It's not an invitation for a conversation. The issue we're having is you think that I'm not thinking about you through the day, but I am. But at the same time, I don't feel I can take the time to actually talk with you or text back and forth in some original way. That's a, yeah, that's an interesting tip. I like it totally worked for her. So in that case, that was a case of people who had mismatched attachment styles, but they found a way to work it out because really all she needed was reassurance. And he just needed to be free to do his thing during the workday. And they found a way to both be happy about that.
Another thing you could do is you could tell people that you're getting involved with, you know, I understand that a lot of people these days really want to get a lot of text messages. And I want you to know that if I don't do that, it doesn't mean that I don't care about you or that I'm not enjoying getting to know you. I'm just not much of a person for texting. I just almost never do it. That is something I do with every relationship. Mm -hmm. And I find it works. It makes a huge difference. A lot of people won't say anything about this kind of stuff, but I feel like just explaining this causes a lot of upset or just uh, misunderstandings and, and kind of like just go away because they're like, oh, it's okay. He's just busy with work. That's how he is. That's who he is. That conversation I have, I've been having for quite a few years now, it just makes a huge difference to the quality of my life. And I'm sure it makes a big difference to theirs as well. Exactly. I really think that if you know that there's something that you do that sometimes creates friction with the kind of people you like to date, then it's good to get it out on the table so that they realize this isn't something to feel insecure about. This is just who I am. People tend to take things very personally when they first are getting to know you. I say the rule of thumb is the less she knows the more heavily she weighs. So the less she knows about you, the more heavily she weighs every shred of information she does have. Guys, it's really difficult for me to overstate. In fact, I think it's impossible for me to overstate the detail in which women analyze you <laughs> and what you're doing. And so if you give them information that helps them to feel better about how things are going, that is helpful. Yeah. I've also found in just in a recent uh, situation, actually, I was just starting to date this girl and through this texting behavior and so on she she had completely misunderstood me but I kind of saw that just from how she acted over the next stages so I, I sent her a voicemail to basically explain it and it fixed everything it's a bit unusual but um, it worked for me when you can spot what's going on with the other person it can solve a little a lot of misunderstanding so she was actually acting like she wasn't interested anymore so some of you guys might have come across this before and you might think, oh, she's rejecting me or she doesn't like me or whatever. But actually, sometimes it's just like you've done something which has made her feel really uncomfortable. And she's like, this can't be a guy for me. I don't feel good about this. And all it takes is you to explain the situation if you saw that and spotted it. Exactly. Women have been heavily rewarded throughout all of history and prehistory for being hard to get sexually. And by rewarded, I mean a lot of women get what they want when they are sexually elusive and emotionally elusive at the beginning of a relationship, namely the guy pursues them and commits to them. So part of what you're seeing if a woman does not make a lot of moves toward you is basically operant conditioning on an inherited mating psychology level. You're, you're seeing something that's a deep part of female psychology. So the way to find out whether she's into you or not is show her more attention. If she's into you, she will show you more and more attention as you show her more and more attention. She will sound happy to hear from you. There will be a smile in her voice when she answers the phone. She will use happy emoticons when she is texting you. If, on the other hand, you show her more and she becomes more elusive, sounds distant and aloof, keeps pushing off times to see you because, and sounds like she's not interested, then that's a no. That's a fair calibration point. Yeah. So we might disagree on this part. I don't know. This is a book called The Rules by Ellen Fame. And I've come across this book through girls I've dated in the past. Other guys might have. The book's been around for a long time. I think it's been like 20 years. I can't remember when it's just... Longer than that, actually, I think. So it's a very famous book, which gives women these rules in order they should follow to the letter. They're very, very kind of strict rules that they should follow. I think there's 20 or so rules. And they follow these and the guy will get committed to them, basically. So it's generally for women who have lost guys in the past, or that the guys wouldn't commit to them and they felt like they were just getting played and things like this. So I felt like it's uh, the type of book that appeals to girls who have felt they've been in that situation before 
maybe dated a few bad boys who just wanted to be independent, but maybe didn't make that clear. And that, so they really want to deal with that. What's your view on that book? Are there aspects of it you found useful or because I know you covered this a little bit? I have to tell you, I first encountered the rules more than 20 years ago, and I made fun of it with all my friends, and I swore that I would never actually read it. And in fact, the first time that I actually did read it, I felt like I needed a shower because (laughs) I was so disgusted by it. So I'm not sure we would have that much disagreement. However, Ellen Fine and Sherry Schneider, the authors of the rules, ultimately blurbed my book because during the same time that they were writing the rules... An evolutionary psychologist named David Buss was writing a book that became extremely famous called The Evolution of Desire. Yeah, we reckon that's a good book for guys to learn more about female psychology. and Men, buy that book. Learn it, live it, love it. David Buss and Ellen Fine both wound up blurbing my book. Dr. Buss, what his book showed was that men and women do have different mating psychologies. They are very different in some ways, and that... There are certain behaviors that are more effective for men in short and long-term mating, and there are certain other behaviors that are very effective for women in short and long-term mating. And because the sexes are, when they first meet, essentially at odds, there has always been a battle of the sexes. It is real. People get emotional and angry about it, and it exists even today. It's based on what worked for our ancestors in the ancient past. And to ignore it is to set yourself up for repeated failure in dating. So I I highly recommend David Buss's book, The Evolution of Desire. But I'll tell you what Buss's work and others' work through the past few decades has shown is Ellen Fine and Sherry Schneider are giving good advice for women who do not want to get played. So, for example, they're pickup artists. It's interesting. There's not one book on how to be a pickup artist if you're a woman. You know why? Because all we have to do is say, how about it, babe? There are, I mean, actually, it's interesting. Just in the last few years, there's been a lot of more books like that. Actually, there's things like How to Be a Bitch to Get More Men or something. I, I can't remember the Nate titles of these books. But just recently, there's been a few of them coming out. And I know that it's an area of vice that's been growing exponentially just lately. These books, correct me if I'm wrong, but these books actually talk about how to pick men up to get them to get more serious about you. There are really... Ah, you mean sort of like girls looking for quantity? Yeah, I'm talking about there aren't any books that say, here's how to get laid, honey. Right, right. No, there aren't aren't, aren't any books like that. And the reason is, I don't know if you realize this, but there's global research that compares in each society the things that men and women have to do of the most successful tactics and techniques that they can use to get sex. And in every society, the number one tactic a woman could use to get sex was to ask for it. So we don't have books like that. But what we do have books for is what women's inherited mating psychology emphasizes, which is commitment. We have lots and lots of books about here are ways to turn a man into someone who will commit to you. Now, I take a slightly different angle on that. For one thing, I do not think that there are hard and fast rules of things you can never, ever do, and that if you do them, your love life is doomed, which is definitely the strategy that the rules takes. They they honestly say things like, if you ever speak to a man first, even just high, the relationship's doomed. I do not take that hard and fast stance. On the other hand, science has shown me very clearly that for women who want to attract a man who really wants to commit and for women who thus want to repel men who simply want to have sex with them and don't want anything else. There are very effective behaviors that will 
what I call tip out the players and tip in the stairs. And so my book is mostly written for men and women, but there is a chapter that's just for men of if you want a long-term relationship, here is how to treat women. And, or it actually, the book isn't even just for straight people. So I talk about if you're a man and you want a man, if you're a man and you want a woman, here's what to do. And then I have, if you're a woman and you want a man, here's what to do. If you're a woman and you want a woman, here's what to do. And so it's kind of broken down into what people are looking for. And it's been very interesting. The, the mail and the reviews that I've gotten about Love Factually show that most men love it, which I did not expect. The men who hate it, it seems to be the reason they hate it is they feel like I just put a big lid on the cookie jar. But I have good news for you guys. If you do just want to hit it and quit it, you need to remember most people haven't read my book. There's a whole world of women out there. And even among the women who do read it, a lot of them won't follow the advice. So you will still be able to have short-term sexual connections if you want. But my book is not about that. I want to be very clear. My book is for people who want long-term connections. So the easiest thing that a woman can do to avoid being in a short-term sexual scenario, and again, I'm not opposed to women who do want to be in a short-term scenario. I just didn't write a book for them. But if a woman did not want to be in a short-term scenario, the most effective thing she could do is to hold off on sexual intimacy until she had emotional intimacy and uh, some level of commitment from the pursuing partner, which is normally a man. So this is exactly kind of what the rules was trying to achieve. The way I first came across this, basically I found a girl I just started to date was acting very weird. <laughs> she was doing things like uh, not returning phone calls and then being very positive. So I was like, I'm pretty sure this girl's really into me, really into me, but she's acting very, very strange about it. And she would be changing the dates when we meet up and she would have an issue with just coming back to my place. And even though there was other aspects of intimacy going on and stuff. And after a few dates, I just sat her down and uh, she actually tried to break up with me at that point. Like say I wasn't right for her because she figured that I was a player and the rules <laughs> dictated that it was time to uh, get rid of me. But I, I just confronted her because I was like, look, I'm guessing you've read this book, The Rules. And I guess that's behind these behaviors and, and so on. And I actually explained my point of view right now, which kind of fixes its situation. My viewpoint was that I've dated girls. And I'm saying like this could happen like with many guys, but I've, I've dated girls where we hook up the first night and then we'll have an amazing relationship for five years. And we hooked up the first night. But I'm not sure we would have if she'd held back with some rules like advertised in. So I, there's a couple of ones in your book. I'll just point them out. There was one rule is like he must directly ask you to be exclusive and say he doesn't want to see anyone else before you have sex. And it was another one is like he must say he loves you and convince you he means it before you have sex. Right. So this is to give the guys at home some ideas. In my world, that's very unlikely to happen. And obviously, I'm not the standard guy either. But it would end up making the relationship extremely weird. And I would feel like she was pushing the bounds of intimacy and commitment way out of proportion of where we were, because sex isn't such a big deal for me. It's like to relax. And actually, sexual compatibility is a huge deal for me. I definitely want to know that we're sexually compatible before I even dream about being <laughs> exclusive or um, I love you. Like when I say I love you, it really means something to me. It's not just something I throw out there. And there's not that many girls I say it to. And it's definitely after we've had some sexual compatibility going on, we've, you know, we've had some very deep sexual experiences together, which eventually gets us to the point where I, I can say, I, I love you. And it, it happens naturally with her. So I felt like these rules basically distort the whole process, make it weird. And I feel like girls using these kind of rules will actually push away some of the best guys because of these reasons, because depending on the guy, of course, he's quite a conservative guy. 
and he hasn't had a lot of sex. He doesn't feel that comfortable with sex and he maybe has sex within relationships mostly. That's a potentially a normal context for him. But for a guy who's dated a fair few girls, is quite open and sexual, I think it's going to come off as very weird having these kinds of standards. So what I want to make clear here is people have comfort levels with their sexuality and how sexual they are, how quickly sexual they are with someone. And if a girl comes and gives you these kind of rules, which is more of a conservative, only be sexual within a relationship, then that's a conflicting thing in, in, in itself. And it's not going to fit you with you. And, and she's doing that not because she doesn't want sex right now. Maybe she is interested in sex and she does feel comfortable and she feels horny and wild right now and wants to jump into bed with you, but she stops herself because of these rules. Potentially, she could lose a guy who's really compatible with her. He feels the same way. He wants to jump into bed with her too. And he may be completely down for a relationship. But if you start playing around and asking these rules, even though it doesn't really fit with your lifestyle and, and who you are and the natural progression, especially today where things are a lot more relaxed, I think we've had people recently talking about hookup culture that's kind of emerged in the States and stuff where a lot of college students tend to hook up earlier, have sex before they get into relationships, right? That's kind of what the hookup culture is these days. Then I think there's a clash of cultures basically here where this won't fit for a lot of people. So I just want to put that out there and see how you respond to that. Once I'd gone through this, basically telling her the story about how this all worked, you know, she's still at that point and we went home and we started developing a relationship and we had a, a relationship about a year. It didn't eventually work out in the long run, but it was a good relationship which wouldn't have happened if the weirdness had carried on and she'd broken up with me before we'd even got together because she felt these rules weren't being obeyed. Well, I have a lot of reactions to that. Let me start with the first one, which is that a lot of people, male and female, have the same reaction that you have to what I've said. Nobody needs a book about finding the almost right partner. The book is about finding the exact right partner for you, not the almost right partner. And honestly, for you, Angel, you may not want a permanent mateship. That may not be where you're headed. And so for you, a woman who adhered to this would not be, she would be wrong for you. And I would like to say to all your listeners out there, guys, if what a woman's doing, if you don't like it, stop dating her. I mean, if a woman's following the rules and you don't like the rules, stop dating her. Historically, and even today, women who want a deep emotional attachment that leads to a permanent commitment, not girlfriends I've had five years, by the way, I mean, women I married and stayed married to for 40 years, that level of commitment. For women who want that, and again, that's who my book is for, people who want marriage, not people who want to date for five years or live together for five years. Very clearly, my book has a purpose. Okay, so we're talking forever marriage. We're talking forever. Yeah, my subtitle is 10 Proven Steps from I Wish to I Do. You're right. For a dating scenario, if you're not sure what you want or in general with your life or if you want sex up front, that is a, a big value for you. Don't date those women. I'm not trying to say, by the way, that everyone has to act this way. And I'm not posing it as these are rules and your whole life's going to go to hell if you don't follow them. What I'm posing it from is a scientific basis. And the science, again, if you've read David Buss's work, the science could not be more clear. Men who are looking to hit it and quit it look for a very specific set of features in female behavior. That behavior is that she is sexually available very quickly. Now, there are also some men who are looking for a long-term relationship who would like to have sex very quickly. But what the research indicates is, and this is, I'm thinking of Buss and Schmidt's research here, but there are other studies as well. The research indicates that when these exact same men are looking for a wife, they swap their standards so that now they value the woman who is harder to get sexually. 
then easier to get sexually. A lot of the quotes that I use in my book about withholding sex until a level of emotional commitment is established are from things that David Bess has written. He refers to, this is his quote, guys, don't shoot the messenger. He refers to men who, for example, say that they love a woman in order to get easy sexual access as quote unquote snakes in the garden of love. And there's a reason he endorsed my book. And the reason is my book shows what inherited mating psychology looks like for men and also for women. So the advice I'm giving is very specifically geared toward women who are willing to eliminate some men in order to eliminate all the men who would booty call. I'm sure it would eliminate a lot of players. This standard will get rid of all of those men. No, I'm agreeing with you, Angel. I'm saying there are men who are not players who want sex quickly. But the women who are reading my book are by and large women who are willing to forgo all of those men if it also gets rid of all of the men who are just hardcore players. For me, it would be an indicator that she's not a very sexual being. That's kind of in my relationship criteria. You put a, a word into the description of these rules earlier, which was conservative. I'm very liberal. And in my younger days, I had sex right away in my relationships. And I loved it. I love sex. And to the extent my relationships didn't work out, it was never about that, unless it was me leaving them because I wasn't sexually happy. So I just want to get that uh, on the table or on the bedspread, as it were, that women who are doing this are not necessarily prudes. But again, if you or some of your listeners don't like this behavior, there is a universe of women who aren't engaging in this behavior and you can go find one of them. Most people aren't going to read my book. Most people who read it aren't going to do what I'm advising. But I am advising based on decades of gold standard science. And I stand by what I said. If women want to eliminate players and, and keep the men who want to commit to them close to them, this is exactly what works. And is there a chance that just going straight to bed with someone and giving them everything up front would work too? Yeah, there is a chance that it would work, but it's not nearly as good a chance. And science is about odds, not certainties. And so the people reading my book, they're looking for odds in their favor. Women want commitment. I'm giving them the odds in their favor. Men also, many men want commitment. And I'm showing them in this book, the odds in their favor as well. But if a guy's going to get mad about something, it is going to be that part of the book. And that's the thing is, I know a lot of women who are really angry about books in the pickup artist community. They're really, really, really pissed off about it. And the thing is, evolutionary psychology cannot be more clear about this. Men and women want very different things at the very start of a relationship. Later in the relationship, they usually come to some sort of agreement. But at the very beginning, they want different things and they can't both have what they want. And that pisses everyone off. And I'm sorry, but it just is true. I'm sorry, guys, you're going to hate that part of my book. I apologize. <laughs> well, <laughs> I like guys, by the way. And I don't know if there's a corollary word to misogynist. I'm not a corollary word to that for men. I love guys. I think I get where you're coming from. And I realize that this advice, you don't like it, but I still have this advice for women. I, I adhere to it. Great, great. I, I just wanted to talk about this because I thought yeah. it'd be interesting. The next thing I wanted to talk about was where to find people for committed relationships. Uh, there's a section of your book talking about good places and good approaches to meet the types of women that would be fit for committed relationships. Yeah. So there are a number of ways. Some of them are very time honored. Mm. One of the time honored ways is to allow your friends and family to get involved. I know that sounds horrible, but it actually works very well. And by getting involved, I mean, you could ask to be set up 
to meet people who match what it is you're looking for. Will you go on some bad dates that way? Sure. You know what? You were going to go on some bad dates no matter what way you met people. So you probably will have some bad ones, but you have higher than usual odds of actually establishing a permanent, happy, committed relationship with someone this way. And the reason is because your friends tend to be a little bit like you are, and they tend to know women who are somewhat like you are, and they tend to know you well enough to think, oh no, not her. She's a cold fish or yeah, you know, she's kind of fun. I think she would get along great with so-and-so. So uh, that's a good way to meet women. Another way to meet women that's really good is uh, through activities where you would share a common interest because one of the single biggest predictors of whether you're going to get on with someone is simply how similar you are. And so if you find someone, let's say that you are vegan and you decide, hey, I'm going to start meeting up with people from People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. I'm going to meet with PETA. Well, you're going to find some other vegans there. That is going to be a place you're going to find them. A third really good location to meet people is on the internet. Actually, that's one of my favorites. I met my husband online. Which website did you use? Well, I use several. Just like a lot of fishermen will cast more than one line, I cast several lines at a time. I really advise people to do that. The particular ones that I used were Match, Chemistry.com, and eHarmony. Those were the three that I used. And I have to tell you, I don't think that any one website has special magic about it, okay? eHarmony did endorse my book, but I really liked all three of those websites for different reasons. So men, here's what I'm going to say to you. If you're commitment-minded and you're heterosexual, I would suggest that you go to eHarmony. And there's a really simple reason for that. And the reason is a lot of women feel deeply insecure about appearing on a website where guys can just comb through lots and lots of photographs. And since eHarmony doesn't allow that, since eHarmony makes introductions, a lot of women feel safe for going on eHarmony. Do you just explain how eHarmony works? Because I myself haven't tried that. I'm not sure how it works. It sounds like it's different from the standard model. Yeah, yeah. So, so let's take some different models. So, for example, with, uh, say, Plenty Fish or with uh, OkCupid. It's just a photographic free-for-all. There are all these pictures, and you can sift through them. You can read people's profiles, and you can approach them directly. The good news is it's going to meet men's inherited mating psychology desire to uh, look at lots of photos. Men are more visual than women are. That's something you've probably thought before, but it also is empirically true. And so you get that with sites like those I just mentioned, also Match.com. The problem with that is that you've got a lot of competition at those sites. Because men like to look through a lot of photos, most of those sites are men heavy. They have about 60% men and only about 40% women. If you want to have higher odds of success, you need to go to a site where there are more women than men, which means you need to go to a website that's geared toward finding a mate rather than just finding a date. And you need to go through a site where you have to pay to be on it instead of just surf the internet for free. Why is that? Uh, because... I totally agree, by the way. Just... Yeah, because women and men alike who are not quite sure that they want a real commitment tend to stay with the free sites. Right. It's kind of like Tinder, right? You know Tinder? Yeah. It's the easiest thing ever. You just push a button and it integrates your Facebook and all of a sudden your profiles and all you have to do is swipe. Yes. So it's the absolute minimum of effort. And as a result, the people on it aren't really taking it that seriously. So if you're looking for a relationship, it has to be about the worst committed relationship where someone's really intent and going to go for it seriously, then that's the worst. Whereas something you put a lot more investment in, 
whether it's money, whether it's time, because I understand eHarmony has a lot of questions when you first get on there. Oh, it's murderous. It's like right. days of questions. It's, it literally, it's going to take you a couple hours to make it through all the questions. And so right there, most men aren't going to do that. And so what you have with eHarmony is a very female heavy population. And these women want, they're interested in a genuine committed relationship. So again, guys, if you don't want anything committed, you can just do the free sites. If you want a committed relationship though, I would skip match and I would actually go to eHarmony because there are fewer men. And so every guy that I have sent to eHarmony was so impressed by the variety of impressive women that they really wanted to communicate with that was available on eHarmony. Strangely enough, though, when I talk to women, I often advise them to go for Match because there are more men on Match. So so once you've filled in your profile and everything, they only connect you with someone. How does it work? Do you get a Match per day that you can talk with or how does it work on eHarmony? They don't send a specified number per day. And I haven't been on it in a while, but I understand from people who still are that it hasn't changed all that much. So what they do is they match you up on criteria that you have identified as being deal breakers for you, core criteria that you must have. When they've achieved a match, they will then introduce you and you can see each other's pictures and you can communicate online. And then the two of you decide when you want to take it offline. So it sounds like there's a pretty small pool. Maybe you would only get a few introductions per week or something like that versus the be able to look at hundreds of different profiles. Yes, exactly. So so I did meet my husband on eHarmony. And it took him a while. My husband was a person who knew, he knew exactly what he wanted. And he knew that he did not want to do the bar scene. He knew that he did not want to date around. So he actually used eHarmony because he wanted someone else to do the groundwork of finding an appropriate match. And then beyond that, he would look very carefully at profiles. And so in a year of belonging to eHarmony, which is a long time, he was very, very picky. In a year of belonging to eHarmony, he only contacted three women The first two, he only went out with one time. The first person, he just didn't feel any connection with at all, although they had things in common. The second person, he felt somewhat of a connection, but it just wasn't the right time for either of them. And then I was the the third person that he contacted, and he never dated anyone again. Again, he was older. He had already been married. He was 52 at the time. I don't expect that you're the men who are listening right now who are in their mid-20s to later 20s would probably want to pursue it that way. And again, I'm not advocating doing anything you don't want to do. But if you're really serious about finding the one and you've kind of had enough of dating where you get to know someone and it doesn't work out, eHarmony really is a good site for that. Right. And also, I think it saves you a ton of time. If you're interested in a relationship, go on Tinder. You'll just end up wasting a ton of time meeting a lot of people who are completely irrelevant to you and so on. Just be a huge time waster. So we had actually uh, Amy Anderson from uh, Lynx Dating. She's got a matchmaking service. So that's a little bit like one step beyond eHarmony in terms of the personalization and that. But we actually saw there that that's a very time efficient process, right? For the guy, the high net worth individuals, they'll get a matchmaking service to save time. And so they're not wasting effort in trying to find the right girl. And so it increases your odds of getting what you want. So there's a good place for these types of services. There's really a dating site for everyone under the sun. There's a way to connect with the kind of person you want. And what was really interesting is there was a huge study, the Harris survey that was done from about 2000 to 2008. It looked at how people had met someone that they married. It was a a marriage survey and it looked at how happy they were. And it also looked at uh, the means that they used to meet. What was really interesting is the happiest people were the ones who had met online. And in that period of time, fully uh, one third of people had met their spouse online. So this is becoming a major way that people not only just hook up and meet up, 
but that they actually choose a permanent partner. And uh comes down to what you said. It can save you a tremendous amount of time. So you said something, something which I thought was important. Like there's a dating site for everyone, meaning that different dating site has a different fit. So figure out what you want and figure out which dating site is marketing to that audience and fits with that audience and, and use that one. It will save you a lot of grief, frustration, and, and so on if you just choose. The other thing you said is like going with your hobbies, with activities and passions you like. That's what something we always say on here. If you're looking for someone in a relationship, someone more like you, someone who's going to be a better fit for you, that is the best place to find people who are going to be suitable for you. What I love about this is it's all about guys developing themselves, investing in themselves, getting better, becoming a better version of themselves. Just go out there and pursue your dreams and invest in your passions, do as much of it as possible and just add a social element to it. So go to conferences, go to clubs, go to competitions, all of these kind of things where you're going to meet other people and ends up killing two birds with one stone because you're going to meet some interesting girls at the same time. We're going to be relevant to you. Absolutely. And there is one more way to meet people that I think is almost always overlooked. And that is look to your past. For about 90% of people, this doesn't apply. But for the 10% it applies to, this is the jackpot. I mean, we're talking about eternal bliss, honestly. The, the studies on people who had a partner when they were really young, usually it's when they were really young and they never forgot about this person. I'm not talking a sexual partner. I'm just talking maybe even somebody they just knew in school. Maybe they didn't even date, but they loved them. They never quit thinking about them. And this person, in fact, is the person to whom you're comparing everyone else who comes into your life, even though you're probably telling yourself, oh, it was just puppy love. It wasn't a real thing. There's a researcher named Dr. Nancy Kalish, and uh, Dr. Kalish has let me interview her a couple of times, and I've read all of her research, and she's given me access to everything that she's done. And what's really interesting is that these relationships, although many of them weren't even, they were never consummated sexually, if there's someone who's that special to you, that you felt a real connection with them, a deep connection, even though you were a child or in your teens, and now maybe 10 years have gone by, maybe many more years than that, and you just can't get them out of your mind, and you're comparing everyone that you meet or date to that one person, I would definitely find out, A, is she married? Because if she is, leave her alone. Leave her alone. Don't even, don't even, well, the reason I say that is that Kalish's research showed that this is real love and that if you reconnect with this woman, it's very likely that even if she's very happily married and you're thinking, oh, she's married, but you know, I'm just sending her a note on Facebook. It's extremely likely like more than nine and 10 odds that both of you are going to fall back in love with each other. And she's probably, by probably, I mean, statistically odds are she's going to leave her husband and her kids to be with you. So if you don't want that on your head, do not go there. But if she's single, contact her. And the reason is, I'm just going to let you guess here. What do you think the divorce rate is for people who met as children or teens? They were very similar. They got along really well. The relationship may or may not ever have been consummated. They spent maybe 10 years apart. They thought about each other a lot, but they always assumed it was puppy love. Then one day they get reconnected. Most of those people get married. What do you think their divorce rate is? Fire. 2%. Wow, that's really (laughs) low. What's the average divorce rate? The average divorce rate right now is about a third. 33. You may have heard it was half, but those are old data. So the average divorce rate right now for people who married in the late 1990s uh, is looking like their lifetime odds are around one third. So, you know, the divorce has gotten a worse rap than it deserves, but still one third can't even hold a candle to 2%. You're talking 98% of these folks are staying married and they are blissfully married. I mean, these are the people who get the eternal buzz. It's amazing how happy they are. I've known some of these folks and uh, they have a love to be told through the ages. 
It's amazing. I got a couple of thoughts there because I'm just relating to my personal experience. The first girl I fell in love with, we were, the, we were together for four years. She looked like Drew Barrymore, who'd been... I fell in love with Drew Barrymore when I was watching E.T. when I was four years old or something. <laughs> um, so she was the perfect girl for me. I met her when I was 17 and we fell in love, the classic first love. However, our relationship got very stressed because I went to university. She stayed in a relatively small town. And I know that today we're completely incompatible from that kind of perspective. There's, I guess, that as we mature, we learn about the different dimensions of what makes relationships work in terms of, I think, roughly equal education and, and things like this tend to have a good fit uh, from my world. You know, I know it's not the same for everybody. And then I'm wondering if there's some kind of imprinting, because I still think back to that girl. Of course, she was my first love. And, and as you say, we compare the intensity and things because it happens to be one of the most intense experience of our lives because it's the first time we're having sex and sexual relations and we've already got too much testosterone and other stuff buzzing around because of the age we are at. And so it does have a huge imprint on your brain, right? Emotional thoughts and stuff, heavily laden emotions have a, a much bigger weight in your brain than more rational, uh, less emotional ones. So I'm wondering if some of that's related to basically that imprinting going on. Not that they were the perfect person for you, but they heavily imprinted your brain and then that somehow lasted the rest of your life. And it helped with keeping the marriage together and everything because you had that intense emotional experience, which is probably very difficult to replicate later on in life. Uh, I agree with you mostly. So uh, Kalish herself has said something similar to what you just said. She said that in the past, most people married their first love and the intensity of that first connection allowed the relationship to continue throughout a person's life. Of course, a person's lifespan wasn't as long as it is now. We're really asking an awful lot of a relationship to last happily for five or six decades. But the thing is, 90% of people do not have a realistic chance of things working with their first love. And here's why. In her research, she found that most people didn't want to contact the first person that they had fallen in love with for reasons. She said people would write in the margins of her questionnaires. They would write reasons that she never would have come up with, like he pulled a gun on me. Wow. Or, yeah. yeah. I mean, she didn't have that on her nice, you know, upper middle class <laughs> questionnaire. She didn't have that. She wasn't thinking about domestic violence when she created that questionnaire. So she said those people would say, hell no. Why would I want to do that? You know, he beat me up or no, she was she was horrible to me. She was mean spirited. She crushed me like a bug. I confessed that I loved her and she treated me terribly. So uh, for 90 percent of people, they shouldn't reconnect with their first love. And the reason is they fell in love with an inappropriate partner. The person who should reconnect with that first love is the following. There's a profile for the person who should reconnect. First of all, you never stopped thinking about them. Let me tell you, most people did stop thinking about them because the other person was really quite horrible to them and that's why they broke up. So if you're still thinking about this person and it's still the case that everyone gets compared to them, usually unfavorably, then that's a special person. Second of all, you've been separated for at least 10 years. Kalish found that people who had been separated for 10 years or more were more likely to have this blissful reuniting. And the reason for that quite possibly is that if they reconnected sooner, the part of the brain that helps you make good judgments is just not fully formed yet. That doesn't finish forming till you're 25, the prefrontal cortex. And in today's, in our agrarian past, both in England and here and many other cultures, you could really safely fall in love with someone and marry the person you fell in love with because you'd been raised in a society where male roles and female roles were very established and 
you were not going to deviate from them. And even if you weren't finished growing up quite yet, there was a map for your life. Now we really have to rely on our judgment and decision-making because we've got a lot of freedom. The world is wide open for us. Men and women don't really figure out who they are often until their late 20s and sometimes later than that. And so we really need to be a bit older. So that's a, a second criterion. A third criterion is how special was this person to you? Are we talking well, every now and then I think about her, or are we talking, I saved all our notes and love letters from the fifth grade? Because the people who reconnect and it really works out, they often had saved all their mementos from this relationship. It had been, they would tell themselves, oh, it was only puppy love. It was probably just friendship. Again, a lot of these relationships, they had never had sex, but yet it was supremely special. Now, I also had a first love, and I've actually never told this story before. You mind if I tell it? Go, yeah. Yeah, so I had a first love. Who? This is how I got interested in the research on first loves, and I've never written or spoken about this before. We followed Kalish's recommendations to a T. We were separated by circumstances other than ones we'd chosen. In other words, we weren't a poor match in terms of personality. We weren't a poor match in terms of values. If you're poor match earlier in life on those things, you probably still are. So don't contact that person. But we were really simpatico. We were separated by circumstances out of our control. And in this case, his parents moved him at the end of eighth grade. We had never kissed. We'd never even held hands, but it was love, baby. And I knew it was the real thing. I knew, I thought when I'm 50, if somebody tries to tell me that was puppy love, I'm going to like throat punch them, you know, because this was the real deal. And it really, truly was. And uh, not knowing the research yet, I've been divorced. And so when I got separated from my then husband and got the divorce, I thought, I wonder whatever happened to so-and-so. I mean, I had saved his letters. I thought about him all these years. He was the standard. Everyone got compared to him. We were down the line, the textbook case. So I thought, I wonder what would happen if I got together, if I called so-and-so. And I saw that he was married and had several children. And I didn't know the research. So I told myself what everyone tells themselves. It turns out, boy, I'm so unoriginal, Angel. It's <laughs> I'm so unoriginal. Everyone tells themselves this. I now know because I know the science now. I told myself, well, you know, it's just going to be a chat. Nothing serious is going to happen here. We won't fall back in love. I mean, that was eighth grade. How lame is that? You know, well, so I connected with him. I found his alumnus directory. I wrote him an email. This is before Facebook was a thing. I wrote him an email and he immediately wrote back, gave me his phone number, asked for mine and wanted to talk. And it was at this point that he started offering to come to my city. He was married. I did not want to be the other woman. And I got to tell you, I have a lot of... Um, Integrity? <laughs> I don't want to put words in your mouth. Well, I, yeah, I don't want to be judgmental of people who would do this. But what I'm going to say here is I have a lot of value that I place on children being raised by the parents who brought them into the world, if possible. I realize that's not always possible. I'm divorced and now my husband is raising a stepdaughter. It doesn't always work out, but I will be darned if I'm going to be the reason that that doesn't work out for children, especially when it's several children. And so I said no to meeting him at all. But I got to tell you, I still thought about him. It was really hard to give him up. One conversation and I was as in love with him as if I was 14 years old and I couldn't wait to see him down the hall and it would make my whole flipping day just to get a glimpse from him. You were imprinted. <laughs> I was very heavily. I got free of it though. Most people don't get free of it. So I was very lucky because at that point I encountered Kalish's research and I thought, oh my gosh, I've got to back away or I'm going to ruin a bunch of people's lives potentially. So I did back away, but then he got involved with his wife's best friend 
And those children all wound up being raised by other people anyway. And I was so pissed that I never talked to them again (laughs) because I thought, but I gave you up. I felt a little hurt over that one. Anyway, so yeah, the past can work out for your future, but make sure they're single and make sure that they're really that special to you before you reach out. Yeah, there's quite a few rules for that. So it seems like basically you select yourself according to those rules and then you get the 2% divorce rate. That's right. Yeah. So there's quite a few caveats, basically. Yeah. If you were with someone in eighth grade and you fell in love with them, but then it turned out that they were really mean spirited or for some reason, their personality was a terrible match and you broke up with them over something that was core to who they are and who you are, then it's still a bad match. There's no point in going there. But Kalish said she thought that the low divorce rate was that people self-selected themselves and that they only reconnected with appropriate partners. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's a self-selection going on. Yeah. So if you've heard that and it fits you, then it's a good reason to reach out. So I've got some quick fire questions to round off here. What is the best way for people to connect with you and learn more about your work? So you can uh, find out more about me and my work at www.lovefactually, with an F, .co, not .com. I can't vouch for where you're going to go on the internet if you type in .com. Lovefactually.co, or you can type in the name of the book or my name at Amazon. It'll take you to my Amazon bio and the book there. It's available in three formats, so you can get it in audio, e, or paperback. Are you on Twitter or anything like that? I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. Uh, I also have my own site called lovesciencemedia.com where I write a Dear Abby-style column where I answer readers' questions based on a scientific perspective instead of one that's uh, simply opinion. Great. And it's all relationship-focused stuff, long-term relationship. Yeah, it's all relationship-focused, yes. Is anyone besides yourself you would recommend for high-quality advice in this area, specifically relationships? people you respect their work or whatever. You know, you mentioned David Buss earlier. Is there anyone else like that? There are several people who write outstanding books for the masses that are relationship science books. David Buss's books are good, although they don't have any advice in them. You can kind of logic your way through to, oh, and so my behavior that would make sense is X. Linda Waite has written some excellent books about long-term relationships. She doesn't give advice either. She just writes about her niche, long-term relationships. Helen Fisher She's a biological anthropologist out of Rutgers. She does give advice, although she gives advice only about her specific niche, which is uh, personalities and how they interact. She's got a really good book called Why Him, Why Her. Amir Levine, who doesn't do research, but reports on it very effectively in a self-help format in a book called uh, Attached, which is all about attachment style. And so these are some of the books that I'm thinking of that uh, are some of the authors that I would point people to. Mine, as far as I know, is the only start to finish from before you meet until you make a commitment decision book that's science-based. The others delve very deeply into a niche, like David Buss's all evolutionary psychology and human mating all the time. And it's fantastic. I really hope every one of you will get a copy of The Evolution of Desire. Great. Thanks for those. And we asked everyone the same question. What are your top three recommendations to guys starting from scratch? And in this case, who want a serious relationship, what are the top three things they should focus on? Work on developing a secure attachment style and or dating someone with a secure attachment style and being open to becoming more secure self would be recommendation number one. Recommendation number two would be pursue her ardently when you find her. Do not wait for her to meet you halfway. She is very unlikely to do it and you could lose the love of your life by waiting for 50-50 early in the relationship. Later on, she's going to give you more like 90-10, but at the beginning, she needs to feel secure that you're pursuing her. And then the third recommendation is to have high standards 
and adhere to them rigorously. Do not settle. No one ever said, thank you for settling for me. So find someone who rings your bell, who you love, who matches you and is very similar to you, who is your best friend and who is kind and respectful. And when you get that, settle down with that person. You found the one. You actually raised a, a nice point there. If we settle, because we're always telling guys not to settle and have standards and stuff. But if you settle, you actually mess up the other person's life too. Yes. Because you're going to be dissatisfied. You're not going to be engaged fully in that relationship. And eventually they're going to start feeling that it's going to start causing all the usual problems in the relationship. And you're actually going to end up making them really unhappy as well. Yeah. Strangely enough, she's not going to say, thanks. I'm so <laughs> third, fourth or fifth choice. Yeah. Yeah. Set her free because some other guy thinks she's it. Let her go. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really interesting and, uh, it's been a great interview. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much, Andrew. I really appreciate it. Take control of your dating life today. Take one idea or one insight from today's episode and apply it today. Don't wait. Do it today. That's all it takes to change your life, step by step, episode by episode. Learn more about what I, Angel Donovan, and my team do at datingskillsreview.com. How we help men like you take control of their dating lives.